listeners, and welcome back to the fifth TFA Daily World Cup podcast of our World Cup series. I'm your host, Adam Scully, and we have another exciting episode for you all today. Over the past 24 hours, viewers have been treated to even more splendid World Cup action. An end-to-end match finished goalless between Mexico and Poland, but Tuesday evening's clash between France and Australia certainly made up for it in a five-goal tour, which saw the current holders at their very best. On Wednesday morning UK time, the world witnessed an intriguing battle between two evenly matched teams when Morocco drew goalless with Luka Modric's 2018 finalists, Croatia. And then finally, Germany and Japan locked horns, which was a fascinating tactical duel between the two different styles. And Japan came away with an earth-shattering 2-1 victory over the 2014 champions. On today's podcast, I'm joined by David Estille and Brian Marquez once more as we review the tactics from each of the four matches in yet another action-packed episode. So without further ado, let's dive right into the analysis. David, Brian, thank you so much for joining me today. We'll jump straight in then to the fourth game, which is between Gerardo Martino's Mexico and Chemeshwav Miknovich's Poland. I think I, I think I smashed that. Um, it was it was a goalless draw, but I, I thought it was quite an interesting game, especially tactically between two different sides and how they wanted to set up. David, I'll throw to you first. I, I was listening to the commentary on Radio Television in Ireland and they were quite critical of um, Poland's performance and it was almost the case that Mexico, because they had more of the ball, were the dominant side, which is just, it's not really a narrative I like in football. I don't think Mexico created that many chances with all the possession they did have. They looked okay. I'm not criticising saying they were poor. They certainly weren't poor. But I don't believe they were, you know, incredible. I think they created maybe one clear-cut chance in the first half. And then, I mean, Poland could have taken the game. They had a couple of chances themselves. And then, obviously, Guillermo Ochoa, the, the writer's name in World Cup history, once again. But do, do you agree with me or do you disagree? You know, were, were, were Mexico the, the far better side in that game? Or do you agree that maybe Poland were defensively very solid? I I did think Mexico were the better side overall. Um, I thought they certainly looked a bit more potent. I think the thing with Poland is they didn't seem to be able to find Lewandowski as much as you would hope that they would. It seemed to be a bit, you know, Lewandowski at one end and everyone else a bit kind of at the other end. There wasn't that kind of join in the middle. So, yeah, I think Lewandowski, I think I think they said he had one stat, uh, sorry, one shot on goal, um, something like that in the first half, you know, which which is not what you expect from, from a player like Lewandowski. But ultimately, when you get to tournaments like this, you can be the best player in the world, but you, you need your team to back you up. And I don't think Poland backed Lewandowski up and gave him what he was looking for. So I think that was the problem with Poland. There were a little bit, kind of a few mistakes here and there, which allowed Mexico in. Um, you know, Mexico, as I said, I thought they were a better side. They certainly were using the wings a lot better and, and creating more chances. I just think Poland looked a little bit disjointed. Um, it wasn't a bad performance, as you said. I, I agree with that. It wasn't a bad performance, and there's certainly some positives in there. But I think on the day, they weren't as good as they could have been. Yeah, and I think just backing up your point on, on Lewandowski there, they I think he touched the ball 32 or 34 times in the whole game, which is the lowest of any other player, which is not ideal. And I understand like guys like Erling Haaland especially has quite regularly had the fewest touches for Manchester City because they have so much of the ball with the midfield and the back line and the goalkeeper. And they, they just do, but it was just such a low volume of touches for a guy like that. And obviously he does play with Barcelona, who are a very possession-focused team. It was quite different for him playing in a team that were genuinely, as I'll ask Brian in a sec, or to, to, I'll, I'll come to Brian to describe in a second, we're sitting in a 6-3-1 low block for large parts of the game. But 
I'll ask you this day before I move on to Brian. Were you surprised with Poland and how they played? Um, yes and no. Um, yeah, like I said, I expected them to be a bit better, but I think also we have to remember Poland don't have a great history when it comes to finals tournaments. Um, I think it was in 20, the Euros, I think it was, where they just completely crashed out. I think, you know, Poland don't have a great history when it came to looking at how they might do. And, and to be honest, given all that, the result was probably what, what was expected. Yeah. At the end of the day, it is still a point gain from both sides. Oh, yeah, you know, yeah. You know, so I think that's that's probably maybe a fair reflection of the game. As I said, Mexico were definitely the dominant team, but I mean, Poland could have taken the three points had they converted the penalty. Bryant, talk to me about the tactical the, the, the tactics of both sides then and, and how Mexico looked to break down such a rigid low block from Poland. I mean, uh, there weren't like really tactically interesting moves like in recent games we've been talking about because Poland was very deep and Mexico was a bit out of ideas. Yes, I think Mexico was better, but I I think it was a really strange match. Uh, low chances, low shots. We have the penalty saved from Ochoa. He is really the king of the World Cup. And I mean, uh, that, that was actually it. You know, Mexico tried to overload the, the wide areas because if Poland is that deep, the central uh, zones are completely congested mm. and they couldn't create. Uh, from there, you, you have a player like Jorge Sanchez, who is uh, really intelligent to go up and create overlapping runs, but also stay behind, trying to put crosses in, in the box. And this was some of the mistakes, I think, from Mexico. Um, I was surprised. I didn't knew till this match that Santiago Jimenez wasn't called up for the World Cup, the, the, the Feyenoord striker. Um, uh, I mean, Henry Martin didn't look that good. He was likely more likely to clear the ball out of his of the rival box than scoring a goal. He he wasn't that on target. He wasn't that accurate in his decisions. And when you look to overload the wide areas uh, with players like Chucky Lozano or Alexis Vega, who uh, not many people may know him, but he's the kind of Chucky Lozano player dribbling from the outside to inside. Uh, I think that's explosive to have these two players, uh, you know. So if you have Jorge Sanchez running behind you, that could be the key to break the this deep block. But then in the box, when you have a player like Henry Martin and not Raul Jimenez or... Santiago Jimenez, I mean, it's difficult. It's difficult because it, it was one time after time in the physical duels and in the aerial duels and 1v1 against Kamil Glick, you know, uh, he couldn't pass, but he couldn't mm. pass. So, and I, I mean, Chesney did a couple of good saves, one or two saves. So, and I think it was against Lozano who really uh, had the threat in that the Mexico side. But I, it was a really, really a bad game. And 
well, a bad game for us and a really good game for Argentina. <laughs> yeah, I think the 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 second half was quite disappointing. I was yeah. interested enough in the first half. I thought the intensity was was good. Poland yeah. had some decent counter attacks where they you know played in the Tordman runners in behind and they were able to 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 get in behind Mexico's high back line and Mexico had a couple of chances as well. Second half was you're right was was completely disappointing and and I think as you're I think Argentina yeah were definitely given a massive boost despite their loss and as well on uh, as the Saudi Arabia will be licking their lips looking at those two teams they just need one more win and yeah, they're not good definitely phase. I think you know and, and, I mean, and especially the way I mean Mexico couldn't break down Poland's low block obviously Saudi yeah. Arabia didn't really play a low block against Argentina they played a very high line but I still think. Mm-hmm. They're there for the take and for Saudi Arabia, and as I said, they only need one win from those two games, and they they they're in the clear. Yeah, and I mean, having a team like Poland, they are not quite good in final tournaments, as David said in the last Euros, they were very bad, and to think they have really good young players like Zimanski yeah. or players at their peak like Zielinski, I I quite like. Kaminsky as well and these kind of players playing on a deep block to provide then long balls to Robert Lewandowski I don't think that is the kind of idea that fits the best these players uh, from Poland yeah I mean Robert Lewandowski associative skills they have to be in contact with the ball lots of time in, in the game and not only receiving the ball at space and running. That's not the kind of a style that fits the best for, for Lewandowski. Yeah, so we'll move on now though to the France and Australia game, which was, you know, to make up for the goalless throw we had prior to it, we had a five-goal thriller, which was very exciting. And I actually quite enjoyed this game just from a neutral perspective, really. Of course, I said, um, a few days ago on the podcast, Rene Mullenstein, a former guest on the podcast, is the assistant manager of Australia. He was in the dugout last night, um, and I was delighted to see Australia go one nil up through Goodwin. It was it was a it was a lovely finish, great cross too, and then France really kicked into gear. Uh, I think maybe the first twenty minutes, Theo Hernandez had one of the worst performances at the World Cup, and in the next twenty, he was. Or, or, or was it Lucas Hernandez? Sorry, apologies when he came on. That's my bad. I'll edit that. Ignore, I'll, I'll, I'll cut the whole part there. Um, France then kicked into gear and they kind of ran right, ran right really over Australia. Olivier Giroud, of course, equaled Thierry Henry's goal record for France of 51 goals. David, talk to me about France's front line because they were without Karim Benzema, who pulled out of the World Cup through injury, even though. Apparently, he was uh, on the team sheet for France, even though he's not available at the tournament, according to commentators when I was watching the game. I feel like they work better without Benzema, because this was the same front line that won the World Cup in 2018. And again last night, they looked incredible. Yeah, and I think it's because they've got different types of players in the front line. Um, you know, you've got Mbappe, who was given the freedom to run around, um, get into the wide channels, get into the central channel, just, you know, whatever he wanted to do, he was given the freedom to move around, which I think really helped him because he was able to get on the ball and make things happen and, and really be a creative presence. 
and you had Olivier Giroud, who I thought was absolutely fantastic, led the line brilliantly. But I think I mentioned on another, on another podcast uh, edition, he's that sort of aerial presence that you need at the top of the pitch. So the France players can target him and, you know, he can he can use his head to get on the ball. Uh, and also he's got that experience as well that he can lead the line. He knows when to play teammates in and when he needs to take the chance on himself. He's shown so often during his career that he knows where the goal is as well. He, he's very capable of scoring goals mm-hmm. and scoring plenty of them. Um, and I think actually that really helped France, just that, that blend of having different qualities in, in that final that final um, final third. And and like you said, Teo Hernandez, when he came on uh, for his brother, I thought he was absolutely outstanding because some of his deliveries into the central areas were really, really accurate. Um, I thought he was one of the the, the better players, uh, and that's saying a lot because France were really good. Um, but I, I thought actually that, um, you know, with him on the pitch, France really looked a threat because suddenly they had players who could put the ball in and players in the middle who could convert those opportunities. And I say Mbappe, Giroud, all those sorts of players. So, yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, Benzema is always going to be a big miss given his form. But I don't think France should worry, given what they showed last night. It is Australia. We should remember that. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's nothing against Australia. They are they are a half-decent side. But, you know, realistically, France are going to have bigger challenges uh, as the tournament goes on. Um, but they showed last night that given the chances, they will take them. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's, that's a really important point to make, that actually without Benzema, some might worry. But actually, given what we, we saw last night, maybe we shouldn't worry too mm-hmm. much. I think my favourite part of the game was when Kylian Mbappe rose above six foot seven Harry Souter to head the ball into the net, which really um, angered me because I don't know why it just it just does. I mean, you should not be getting beaten to the air there. He got in between two centre halves, two centre halves that were much taller than him, and headed the ball home. It was great movement from Mbappe, but from a defensive standpoint, it 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 should be criminal for Australia to allow that to happen. Bryant. I'll throw to you on this now. Antoine Griezmann played a very interesting role as well for France. He was, well, in the graphic said he was the right of a, a three central midfielders, really. I actually thought he'd drift more into like the number 10 role in like a 4 2 3 1. But, but no, he actually kind of stayed more towards the right half space. And then as well, I want to ask you about Australia's mid block, that, that 4 5 1 mid block. It was, it was a travesty. Talk to me about why. Yeah, Australia really started the game really well. Uh, they were brave and confident in possession. Uh, Arumui was managing very good uh, their possessions. And they found a good goal uh, with a diagonal long pass from, I think, Harry Sutter to Matthew Leckie. And it was a brilliant finish then from, from Goodwin. After that, they kind of like... They didn't want the ball, so they sat in the mid block four five one, and France they really started the game when Teo Hernandez uh, sub in was sub in by uh, for his brother. I, I mean, the explosiveness, the chance creation, the carrying, the ball carrying. That it's absolutely magnificent to Teo Hernandez. He for me, he's. If not the best left back in the world, he's top three. You know, he, he's amazing. And this kind of wide and high position by Theo Hernandez hogging the line really stretched this block and spaces were instantly found by France through the middle and between the lines. 
Anton Griezmann role to drop deep and find these passes to Kylian Mbappe or to Olivier Giroud to have a little touches or even Usman Dembélé on the, on the other wing. It was really good. This kind of setup with Pavard in an inverted uh, fullback mm -hmm. role and Griezmann coming coming deep. And one of the movements I kind of like from France, it was on the left side. Rabiot did uh, elevate his position a bit. So he pinned one of the midfielders and Mbappe appeared between the lines thanks to this. Because when you pin a, a midfielder like Rabiot was doing, And having Theo Hernandez stretching the team on the outside, you cannot defend a player between the lines because the fullback is trying to recognize which player he has to go if he goes for Theo or if he goes for Mbappe. And it's not an easy decision. You're not playing Sunday league. You're playing against Theo Hernandez mm -hmm. and Kylian Mbappe. It's absolutely difficult and totally confused. When, when you're in that at that moment. Then Griezmann, when he was not that deep, he was pinning one of the center backs, or Rabiot was pinning the midfielders, and the center back has to actually come out a bit to, to uh, take a look at Rabiot as well. So that kind of movements to make Mbappe appear centrally, to then go to then Mbappe receive, turn the game run and play with Theo Hernandez, that was the key for France to, to break the, the mid-block by Australia. Over the right, they kind of do it the same, but with the inverted fullback, that was Pavard. He was pinning one of the midfielders as well and making Osman Dembele appear wide or uh, in between the lines. He was very mobile and he was, I, I think, very dynamic when he, he was on the ball. But it was a a show, a masterclass from France and the demonstration that, that they still favorites. They not believe in the champion scores or, or all that mm -hmm. stuff. They really have the talent aside the injuries. Even Lucas Hernandez was injured in this game. So another important injury for them. But it was, they were amazing. Amazing. Even, even, with, even with France's depth, I mean... The injuries yeah. they've had, sorry, their depth is incredible. Like, you know, yeah. they've had Pogba, Ocantio, Varane wasn't available. They've missed Kempembe, they've missed Benzema, mm -hmm. and yet they still put on a and masterclass in, in yeah. international football. And as you spoke about Pavard and Dembele, it was sort of similar to Dembele's role for Barcelona when you have that right back yeah. who can tuck inside and play in half spaces, create, exactly. back, create a back three, and Dembele almost like a, an old school winger will hug the touchline, but he's He has, he's obviously um, hand bipedal, so he can use his left and his right foot, but he's able to come inside then, drive at the fullback, and he's deadly. And I think credit to Deschamps, he put together, which can be really difficult because you're trying to put together your own system while making sure that the player's strengths are utilised. And I think I think he did that incredibly well, and it's one of the reasons yeah. why they are world champions, of course. <laughs> totally. And I think uh, it was a really offensive France mm -hmm. this time we were used to see a pragmatic and like flat side yeah. when France had the ball with these kind of players people were mad how you cannot play uh, that are attacking well the euros attacking. the euros they were they were yeah underwhelming they were. I, can, I can only say I mean it was really poor they 
were defending yeah. for most of the matches and they were quite dreadful to watch. This was a nice surprise. Yeah, it's a nice and I love that surprise because mm-hmm. to see these talented players, this really, really, really large squad with lots of talents, uh, they are the favorites for this competition. Yeah. Talk what you want to talk about <laughs> Pogba curse or injuries or whatever. They are really, really good. They yes. are the champions and they still have Mbappe and Griezmann, who in the national team is absolutely amazing. Mm-hmm. Chuamni, who was brilliant, giving balance on the midfield. So, yeah, I think they are quite good. Moving on now to a team that showed Australia how to defend in a 4-5-1 mid to low block was Morocco. I was su- surprised, well, it was a nice surprise of how good Morocco were. They have some really good players within the squad. Some really, really top talents to play for some, some of the best clubs in Europe. The likes of Hakim Ziyech and, of course, Akra Hakimi who came on. But talk to me about Croatia for a second because I, was, I wasn't overly... Um, impressed with them I don't I wasn't impressed with them during the 2018 or the 2020 Euros either and obviously they reached the final in 2018 but this seems to be kind of the last one song for a lot of players like Luka Modric especially he himself played incredibly deep during that game I would imagine that that was because Dejan Lovren was starting which uh, surprised me a bit that Lovren did start because he's not great with the ball at his feet Josh Gokverdiol beside him was, is really good with the ball at progressing it and, and playing out he's very comfortable Dejan Lovren has never been that type of defender um, and as I said quite often the fullbacks would push out and Luka Modric would drop in as like a tour centre half but he, he was really deep and uh, for me I think Tony Cruz usually does that role for Real Madrid but for me I wouldn't really play Modric that deep because I you, you want him in in not more advanced areas, but you want them definitely in the mid in the middle of the park where he can kind of carry the ball or he can make those ball play you know those passes in behind. So talk to me why about why Croatia were kind of disappointing is a better way to put it. Yeah, I, I think I mean I remember I tweeted about this during and after the game. I think it was more a case of I mean Croatia weren't great. That that much everyone can see, but I think actually Morocco should deserve some credit because I think they actually quietened Croatia. I mean, you look at the first half, I think Croatia were limited to a few long-range shots from Perisic and I can't remember who else, someone else had a go. And that kind of summed up their first half performance in a way. Um, But the second half, I mean, Modric barely got on the ball, but it was barely mentioned in commentary. So I think, you know, Morocco, you know, they they used numbers all over the pitch. They attacked in numbers, they defended in numbers. Um, But, you know, that, that... basically sort of limited what Croatia could do. You know, every time Croatia got on the ball, they had about two or three players around them. So they, they, they were constantly cut off from each other. So it looked a bit disjointed and it looked a bit all over the place. Um, and it was, but I think actually Morocco did really well to silence Croatia and to, to really kind of isolate individual players. So yeah, Croatia weren't as good as we thought they could be. Um, and, you know, certainly, you know, other games they will they will be better. Um should did. I mean, you know, Modric needs to be getting into those advanced areas as we said, but I don't think he was able to because he was having to help out defending it or helping mm-hmm. to have, help having to help out on the wing. It's, it's little details like that really that I think really let them down and, and that's why I think they came up uh with just a point in this one. Um so yeah I, I, 
it's a tricky one because you could argue either way. You know, some people said Morocco were poor, some people said Morocco were great. I thought they were they were quite good actually. Um, I definitely I thought they were quite good. Croatia, I, was, I was really impressed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think from Croatia's point of view, I think it's a point earned given the way the game went and given the way they played, rather than mm-hmm. two points lost. Yeah, I agree with that. Brian, I'll come to you then on the the defensive setup of Morocco, especially their counter pressing was really aggressive. Off the ball in that five four or that four five one with Amrabat especially as the four kind of picking up players between the lines and then you had the the, the front line were pressing high. It it was or the centre forward apologies was on um Croatia's six. It was really impressive from a dis- defensive standpoint and they really limited Croatia's ability to progress forward up the pitch. I think for the most part Croatia just kind of kind of had to look long, which isn't it's probably not ideal when you have players like Modric in your side. Yeah, you. I mean, you have to love these kind of teams that they feel, or or the people when preview the matches, they talk about them like underdogs. And when they are on the pitch, they are brave, they are confident, and they are very aggressive in their ideas. Saudi Arabia, we saw him against Argentina, and that kind of team is really impressive to see. And Morocco, it wasn't that high line or high block, but it was brilliant in their coordination of which player jumps, which player takes this one. I mean, Mm -hmm. when you want to have that coordination inside the pitch, you just have to be very communicative between the players. They have to talk, I'm going for this, you're going for that. And that is difficult. You know, against a side like Croatia that has Luka Modric and his movements or Marcelo Brozovic, who is a really good progressor. Also, Josko Fardiol, who, I mean, he's one of the best centre-backs with the ball. You just have to be very committed to what the side and what your team want to do. Amrabat role to jump and then track back another midfielder. And this man marking from the midfielders to try and get the yeah. ball back, it was amazing, amazing. And I think Lee said to us uh, before the, the podcast that a team with Masraoui and Hakimi mm-hmm. at their wings is absolutely amazing. And it, and it is. It's a shame to see Masraoui um, injured. I think he's the most for me, is the most intelligent fullback to play inverted. He's amazing, amazing in that kind of role. He knows how to exchange. And these are the kind of things I think Morocco has to be better. They were really good um, on their mid-block, where they have to still uh, recreate good transitions and uh, good possessions because you you are good defending you're very good aggressively counterpressing that coordinated but yes you have to score goals and i think that it did lack for croatia and for morocco but i think it was a great plan for morocco is a point that feels like a victory for them but it also is a point that feels like a victory for croatia because the way that the game was played the way they didn't find their key players like modric on the final mm-hmm. and and that is obviously all because what Morocco wanted to do, you know, blocking yeah. these passing options and blocking all the spaces. 
it was kind it was really good and it was an example of how coordinated and how you have to move your block and jump aggressively to keep being that tight and that solid yeah and i think a, a big shout out to Sofian Amraba who was for me one of the best players on the pitch again playing that yeah. zonal role where the two number 8 would be more man to man against croatia he would play the zonal role when kramaric would drop deep you know, if Vlasic would come inside, he would always pick up any man between the lines. And he did it so, so well. I love watching him at Fiorentina. And today was, was I was really imp- impressed from the 60 yeah. minutes that I watched him for the last 15 and the first 15, I fell asleep. But I, did, I, I still enjoyed the game. But we'll move on now to another <laughs> giant killing match. Yesterday, we were treated to Saudi Arabia's incredible historic win over Argentina. And today, we got another massive David versus Goliath uh, win I want to say David I'll come to you you're rubbing your hands at me Japan defeated the 2014 champions Germany and just before I ask you for your take on the game I thought Germany were impressive in the first half they could have scored several goals the way they moved the ball was really good they were really efficient with their passing some of the switches of play especially from like Nico Schlotterbeck who who is one of the best ball playing defenders in Europe. But then the second half, talk to me about that. Japan came out of the blocks straight away after the interval and looked excellent. And a narrative has seemingly been thrown out that Japan can't go far in any tournament and that Germany would, would walk all over them because of it's just, I find this such a lazy narrative that um, it's the lack of physicality within the Japanese side. That was absolute nonsense. Germany's only goal came from a penalty. They didn't, I mean, they didn't trouble really Japan from set pieces at all. They didn't score any headers. Talk to me about the second half and how how incredible of a performance that was from Mariasu's side. Yeah, uh, Japan deserve huge credit for the way they came back because I think a lot of people were looking at half-time saying they're too defensive, they're sitting back, mm-hmm. you know, they're not going to go and win a game, they need to go and have a go. Well, in the second half, you know, in half-time, obviously their manager thought the exact same thing. You know, he brought on Tomiyasu. He seemed to go to sort of wing backs. He pulled um, uh, pulled some players back from that, the full backs going forward, the wing backs going forward. Um, you know, they changed, they experimented a bit. They changed to a back four, back five. They had a back three, I think, at one point. But what was really impressive from them was that they went on the counter-attack. You know, they almost sat back and allowed Germany to come on to them. And as soon as they won the ball, they then used the pace of the likes of Potoma, Asano, um, Minamino when he came on, you know, to then go attack and try and, and get behind Germany's, uh, Germany's defensive line where the spaces were then available. And that's really what caught Germany out. You know, that and, and that is to Japan's credit because that was something they, they did. And the changes they made, I think we're all attack-minded changes, apart from Tomiyasu, obviously. So that shows, again, that in the second half, they wanted to go for it. They were trying to get on the front foot and trying to make things happen. Um, and, you know, you look at both of their goals, and they both came through effectively counter-attacks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the first one was a combination of three substitutions, moving all around nicely, and then Doan was there to, to put in the uh, the rebound. Second one, long ball from the defence, straight into the final third. And uh, and and uh, Asano scored the goal. It it really was actually quite simple when you think about it, which reflects badly on on Germany. Mm. But from Japan's point of view, it was those second half changes and that change to a sort of counter attacking style of play 
that really helped them. And, and you know, as I said, in the end, they thoroughly deserve the win. Joshua Kimmich spoke before the game about how they're hungry to rectify the mistakes of 2018 when, of course, they were knocked out, if I remember correctly, to Mexico, who were excellent in that game. They lost 2-1, I believe, if I remember the score correctly. You put a tweet out, David, or apologies, you actually sent a message in our in our chat and you said that they've Spain next, Germany. They've already lost to Japan in a game they were heavy favourites to win. They lose to Spain, they're out. So yeah, that's what Kimmich saying they're hunger, they're hungry to rectify the mistakes. They'll they'll almost go one step further and they might not even <laughs> they'll be lucky to pick up a win now. Yeah, absolutely. And and they need it. But I think there's some serious questions. I mean, defensively, the two fullbacks look really unsure of themselves. So did the centre backs, to be fair. Just at times they were a bit slow, a bit tepid with with ball, didn't seem to be sure of where they were meant to go, where the ball was meant to go, where each other was. But I think the thing that really has concerned me about Germany, certainly in 2018, it did with Werner. I wasn't convinced by Werner leading the line and, you know, he didn't have a great 2018 tournament. And I remember mentioning that in, in an article somewhere at the time that Werner was the one thing that really concerned me. This time, I don't think they've sorted that attack out. Havertz leading the line. I got some stats at halftime. He had 20 touches in the first half, which is 13 fewer than Muller, 56 fewer than Rudiger. And out of anyone in the German team, he had the least possession. Now, for someone who is leading the line, that's a bit concerning. And Graham Porter's um, having the same so issues at Chelsea. Half. Yeah, Graham, you know yeah, he, he's yeah. playing Havertz as that 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 number nine. And when he's tried to put Aubameyang there, Aubameyang's just as bad. So he's kind of stuck with that. Whereas Germany have like Nicholas Fulkrug on the bench, who's doing incredible well, exactly. for this season for Werder Bremen. Exactly, and and you would th- you would have thought that with Werner out, they would have just put a, a striker in there, someone that they knew would be able to lead the line. But they've gone for Havertz. It was an experiment. I don't think it worked. And I, I think from my, from Jeremy's point of view, they need to go back to the drawing board with, with that one. I really think again, because in this one, I think having that almost false nine rather than an out-and-out striker or, or a centre-forward of some sort, as opposed to an attacking midfielder, which is what Havertz is, um, I think it didn't work. And certainly against Spain, they won't get away with that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we obviously haven't seen Spain yet. We don't know what sort of Spain is going to turn up. But they won't get away with having that false nine and having that sort of lack of presence at the top of the field. Um, so, yeah, Germany need to win, but in order to go and win, they need to go and sort out some of those issues that appeared in this game. Yeah. Brian, uh, Germany found it quite easy, I feel, because Japan did sit off a bit, and even when they pressed high, Germany would bypass the pressure quite easily in the first half. Second half, that wasn't really the case. Uh, talk to me about Germany's frailties then, because this the... While while Japan did come out after the interval and they were much, much better, I, I was um, kind of taken aback by just how lacklustre Germany looked in contrast to the first half. Yeah, I mean, you're totally right. And I agree with you. In the first half, they bypassed the press. Uh, not the press, but the low block mm-hmm. from Japan very easily. Uh, Schlotterbeck, who I agree with you, is one of the best ball-playing centre-backs in the world. He was kind of like passing it to Schole on the right and instantly after that pass was played, they found one of the midfielders um, free uh, with a space. And this was because Thomas Mueller or Jamal Musiala in a more free role, they were kind of pinning the Japan midfielders. So they kind of 
really uh, break the block really easily when you have players like Kimmich. It's absolutely magnificent. Even in the second half, that it was a very poor one from Germany. They did a really good play that ended up in, I think, like five or six saves for the Japanese goalkeeper. And yeah, in the second half, David has said it. Japan exchanged their intentions for this match. They tried to be more aggressive and the substitutions were really good, really good. Uh, Tommy Yasu one was quite impressive and, and, and it did change a lot for Japan. And Germany felt like mentally I think they felt like they have already already won the game mm-hmm. they were passing it side to side they didn't uh, they weren't creating that lot lot of chances I think that the only one I saw that was this one where Kimmich uh, really beat the press really well and yeah. find nobody I think uh, running in behind that play so uh, they kind of sit behind with the ball passing it side to side and Japan didn't feel quite comfortable with that. They want to win the ball back and create danger and threat. And the first weakness Japan found uh, against Germany was Schule as a right back. When you have players uh, like Japan has, they are really good and they are really technical in the terms of dribbling and 1v1 situations, and they are explosive and pacey wingers, or in, and even play, uh, midfielders and the strikers are like this. Uh, you just have to go there and face 1v1 Schule. And in the first goal was a score like this. Schule was really out of uh, position and in a really bad body shape to mm-hmm. defend that. And they scored the goal, yes, by a rebound, but it, it was thanks for to this and how they managed to run behind Germany. And, and we, then, we actually uh, we actually spoke about this only yesterday, I think, with Lee, and we spoke about the Licht role uh, with the Netherlands. It was almost identical to the struggles that, yeah. she, that, that Nick yeah. Schiller faced. It was exactly. If, I mean, if a handy flick was almost like if he was watching the Netherlands game, you would think to yourself, well, "Okay, don't don't put your don't. very your very almost similar centre half in the exact same position." And he, and he did, and they faced the exact same problems. And De Ligt criticised yeah. Van Halen after the game, which is, I mean, even though he's only been a few more <laughs> matches, you do not criticise Louis Van Gaal, you know. <laughs> yeah. And, and by the way, Van Gaal is, you don't criticise him, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, Germany found this kind of problems in possession and out of possession because surely wasn't doing this uh, fullback role kind of good and I was looking at their squad and they don't have a fullback that I could say well get them him in and these kind of problems are going to to uh, uh, yeah go off Carrier is not that good on the right back Klosterman is has shifted into a more centre back player so I mean, it has it has to be an experiment there, and Japan really found that weakness. And the second goal, it was I mean, an incredible was... touch, by the way, from uh, Takuma Sano. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, in the second goal, Germany 
they were totally mentally down. That goal throw them off and throw them down. And Asano won a physical duel against Slaughterbeck. That was uh, like unbelievable in the, the way he used his body to, to get Slaughterbeck out. And Neuer, I don't think he covered that well his post, but it was a brilliant finish. Yeah, a brilliant, was. you know, you have to be brave to try and shot Neuer that ball in, in, in that position and in that hole of the goal. You have to be really brave. But you have to get you have to get both power and height on it in order to be Neuer at the near post. And uh, he did ex- <laughs> yeah. he did exactly that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was I I really love this game. It, it was a surprise and I love the way Japan have been growing uh, their football and they left uh, Kyogo and Hatate out of the squad and they still have a really good squad. So I really like the way they play, the players they have and the tactics they use today. And that pitch managing from the from the head coach to okay to recognize that they aren't doing good and they're going to counterattack that and try new experiments. That is quite good and I love that from the managers. And Moriyasu was the assistant manager in the 2018 World Cup for Japan when they came very, very close to knocking up Belgium in what was a still one of my favourite World Cup games of the last 10 years. David, you have some final thoughts on the, the Japan's incredible win over Germany. Yeah, well, it was interesting when I was listening to the commentary uh, during the match uh, that the uh, TV station, I won't mention which one. Um, basically, <laughs> it's very <laughs> it's obvious. <ITV. laughs> um, but yeah, they basically said that the German journalists and the media next to them, who were obviously working on the game, the minute the second goal went in, they they literally threw their arms up in exasperation. It's almost as if, and the point I'm trying to make, it's almost as if the German media, the fans, they know what the problems are. They know that there's those defensive issues and they know they're not scoring enough. But the players and the, the coaching staff, obviously, if they, if they do, they're not finding solutions. And if they don't, that's obviously a big worry. But it's almost like everyone in Germany knows what the problems are. And they almost expected that when they realised they weren't going to be scoring more goals and Japan were getting stronger. It's almost like they were expecting that to happen. Then it happened. And it's, it's a bit like, well, you know, there it was. Here we go again. Another World Cup shock and another potential exit if we don't win the next one. They obviously knew Spain was going to be coming up. They knew it was going to be a tricky one. They knew this was the one they had to win. And it's, you know, it was just the way that they said they threw their arms up in exasperation. It just made me think that the whole of Germany knows these are the problems, yeah. but they can't seem to fix them on the pitch. And well, it Germany, just seems to be the Germany same, same as here again. Yeah, one and eight, I think they've only won. So you're right there. It's not just this game. This And, and again, this is why I was disappointed because the first half, they were really good. And the second half, they looked like yeah. the, the, the soft... I hate using that word in football. The same, it's the same. quite masculine, almost, and I don't like it. But they did almost look like their their soft selves that we've seen in the UEFA Nations League, where they picked up. I think I don't. I'm not even sure they picked up a win. Maybe one. They were. They were. They were woeful at best. I think they should bring back the days in 2014 where Joachim Löw would play with four central defenders in a back four. Benedict Hüvedes could play either left or right. David Bryan will wrap up there. Thank you so much for joining me today. This is a great chat. To all the listeners at home, I hope you enjoyed too. And make sure to tune in tomorrow as we tactically review the games between Spain and Costa Rica, Belgium and Canada, Switzerland and Cameroon, and Uruguay and South Korea. Goodbye for now. <laughs>